It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hi, this is Fiona from the Indie Life podcast team. And welcome to the June edition of the Bits and Pieces podcast. This month I have a special guest presenter with me, James, also from the Indie Life podcast team. Welcome, James. Hi, glad to be here. June's been quite a month. Started off with, of course, the Jubilee. Didn't see much evidence of it round here, apart from perhaps the odd token attempt in a shop window. Did you see anything? No, I heard tell of street parties, but never actually saw one. Coverage of the Jubilee certainly seemed like a very English affair. Lots of Union Jacks everywhere. Two bits I enjoyed the most, I have to say. One was when the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, arrived I can't actually remember what building he was entering, can you? Oh, some sort of a stately building across from a Five Guys or something. <laughs> Probably Westminster Abbey. This is the welcome that he got. Prime Minister just arriving with his wife. That was very definitely booing, wasn't it? As she said herself. <laughs> they sounded actually surprised, which I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it would be a surprise to anybody north of the border that he might have got booed because he came up here to Edinburgh and that's what we did. We lined the streets and we booed him. But I don't think they were expecting it in London. Rather, they probably were, but they were told to take a stance on it. And it was, oh, yes, uh, how, how could this have happened? Uh, oh, entirely unexpected. <laughs> and there was quite a few jokes made at the time about, um, I think it was a Simpsons episode where it was they were booing Mr. Burns. Oh, yeah. What, what, can you remember what the joke was? Yeah, it's Smithers covers for him. He's like, why are they booing me? He goes, oh, they're not booing you. They're saying, boo Burns, boo Burns. <laughs> Jubilee weekend it was four days worth it was beautiful weather in Edinburgh and I know that because I was through on Carlton Hill where a relatively new group I think called Our Republic was having a demo and it was quite well attended which seemed to surprise them and the speakers they do have a website ourrepublic.scot if anybody wants to know a bit more about them yeah I hadn't actually heard about the group until you mentioned them have they been around quite a while I hadn't heard of them either I went through to record it for Independence Live. I only managed to get the first two speeches because they're such a new group. They didn't have any sound equipment. So you had one guy holding a, a loud hailer and the speaker trying to speak through it. And other than the first two, I couldn't actually hear the next ones. And speaking towards the energy in it, I imagine a lot of that was also just the sheer timing of it. The fact that it was happening pretty much synchronously with the whole Jubilee proceedings and the fact that... Everyone there probably had a little sense of, oh, we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, you know, that kind of thing. Do you know, that's exactly how it felt. It felt as if we were doing something a little bit naughty and a little bit rebellious, and it was fun. The first speaker, SNP MP Tommy Shepherd. It was a long speech from Tommy Shepherd, so I'm just going to show the first half of it. But if you'd like to hear the whole thing, it is available on Independence Live's YouTube channel. Good afternoon. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very great pleasure to be here, as Tristan just said. Uh, this is more people than I was expecting as well. And, uh, the best day of the year so far, and with so much else going on in Edinburgh this Saturday afternoon, it's great to see more people here than there are at any street party in Scotland celebrating. Yeah! Uh, the Scottish Conservatives put out a press release on Tuesday condemning me for participating, not in this event, but in an event I'm doing later, which is an international 
Republican conference, which is also taking place today, saying that it was extremely disrespectful to be engaging in such activities on the 70th anniversary of Her Majesty's reign uh, and coming to the throne. And that is an example of how people who support the monarchy are trying to close down legitimate debate about it. And in fact, there is no better occasion than the 70th anniversary of her accession to the throne to ask the question, do we still want to be celebrating this in another 70 years? No! Or, or is it time to exert a fundamental democratic principle, which is that the people have got the right to elect their leaders, and in particular to elect their head of state, and to unelect them if they do not like them. Yes! in this country and across the world have fought for not just for decades but for centuries as human history has evolved and our civilization has developed. And this weird pre-medieval anachronism that we have in the government of the United Kingdom is surely time for review. So I hope that whilst obviously there, this is a day for the monarchists to celebrate, I hope that that this will also mark a change. This will mark a sparking of a new debate about the future of the monarchy in the United Kingdom and in Scotland, and we will see much more dialogue and discussion and conversation take place. And it has to cease to be a taboo subject. Because the arguments I'm putting forward, sometimes I think, oh, maybe I'm just weird. Maybe I'm a, in a minority of one, and maybe you know that's completely unreasonable. In fact, when people are asked in opinion polls, this is not only a significant point of view, but an increasingly popular point of view. 27% of people in the YouGov poll last month across the United Kingdom said they wanted to abolish the monarchy when asked a simple question, do you want to keep the monarchy or abolish it? 60% said keep. And that is down from support for the monarchy being at three quarters of the population just 20 years ago when the Golden Jubilee was celebrated. Amongst young people, there is an actual majority across the United Kingdom saying they want to abolish the monarchy. Yes, yes. And here in Scotland, here in Scotland, the United States opinion is divided. That poll showed that 45% say they want to keep the monarchy and 40% say it is time to abolish the monarchy. So we are part of a momentum that is growing. We are part of an argument that is gaining ground and gaining currency, and I believe will win. And it is no, you know, no difficulty in seeing why that is the case. Because you know, if this was just a day in which we celebrated one remarkable woman's seven decades of public service and all the good and charitable works that she did, that might be okay. But it's not just about that. Let's not kid ourselves. This is about the promotion of an institution that sits across, sits at the top of a system of privilege and class power, which is an anachronism of previous, of previous centuries. Something which underpins the inequality and all of the things that are wrong in this society. And the very idea of spending 30 million pounds on parties and festivities and celebrations while more children than ever go to bed hungry in this country, this is an outrage. And I do think, as I said in the paper uh, column today, I do think 
that those who support the monarchy ought to be a little bit more humble and a little bit more circumspect about their festivities. Mm -hmm. Because I think this largesse and the fact that they're using taxpayers' money to do it will backfire yeah. and will rebound on So it was quite windy up on Carlton Hill. I think you can hear that in the recording, but quite an interesting discussion. Yeah, the key point raised there, and it is an important one, is these things have to be up for discussion and we should have a choice in in these matters. Now, the next clip follows on from what we said there about the cost of living rises. And after much nagging, the Westminster government has finally agreed, instead of making loans to people, which they'll then recoup, they've decided to give every householder a £400 grant towards their energy bills. Now, Rishi Sunak was being grilled by the Treasury Committee. One of the members, Siobhan McDonough, Labour MP, beautifully illustrated the old adage that if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. Um, Chancellor, um, I'm sure you would agree that challenge, given the challenges facing public finance, it's vital that all taxpayer-funded uh, support is targeted to reach those households generally struggling with a cost-of-living crisis. How many second homeowners will receive an £800 discount to their energy bills? Uh, I completely agree. It's right that we target uh, support. That's 772,000 households or £620 million. How many people own three homes and are therefore in line to get £1,200? Sorry, are you carrying on? Do you want want to finish? No, no, I'm, I'm just wanting you to know how much money is going to people who some of us would think probably don't need that help. Yes, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. There will be some people who, who don't need the help. Uh, that is, um, unfortunately, the consequence of having to do policy in practical terms. And I think we, we were talking previously about providing support on a more universal basis. So assuming you agree with that, uh, which, which you may not, and that's fair enough, in which case, fine. But if you do agree that you need to provide support on a more universal basis, given the scale of the challenge, then you have to think, well, how best can we do that? There are so, 61,000 people who own three properties who will benefit to the tune of £1,200. That's a £73 million taxpayer-funded windfall. How much will you help will you get with your energy bills? Actually, I'm donating mine to charity, so I made that clear a couple of weeks ago. So again, just to, to answer your question... that's really philanthropic, well, ch- Chancellor, but isn't it being philanthropic with other people's money? Uh, as Mrs Thatcher famously said, there is no such thing as government money, there's only taxpayer money. Um, at a time when the total tax burden has risen to the highest level since the 1940s, is it really good use of taxpayer money for somebody on the Sunday Times rich list or indeed for any MP or government minister to be receiving second home support when others are choosing between eating and heating? She was relentless, wasn't she? And just for the record, he has 12 houses. So at £400 a house, that would be £4,800. And although he says he's going to donate it to charity. That could be the Chelsea home for retired Tory ministers, for all we know. And as the point was made, that's not his money to give. It's not his money to give, exactly. So staying with Westminster for the moment, let's move on to the appalling Rwanda for refugees policy. 
Stuart C. Macdonald asking an urgent question of Pretty Patel, the minister. Pretty didn't even turn up. She sent a minion to respond. So here's the urgent question. Then we'll hear what her minion had to say. Thank, thank you, Mr Speaker. To ask the Home Secretary whether she will make a statement on the planned removal of asylum seekers to Rwanda. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Our world-leading migration and economic development partnership with Rwanda is a global first and will change the way we collectively tackle illegal immigration. This is a global problem that requires international solutions. Rwanda is a fundamentally safe and secure country with a track record of supporting asylum seekers. Individuals will be relocated to Rwanda and have their asylum claims processed by the Rwandan authorities. The partnership is an important part of our reform of the broken asylum and migration system. I welcome the High Court's decision on Friday on this. However, with legal proceedings ongoing, it would be inappropriate to comment further than to say we comply fully with our legal and international obligations. We aim to move forward with a policy that offers new opportunities for those relocated to Rwanda and enables us to focus our support on those most in need of our help. The British public rightly expect us to act. Indeed, inaction is not a responsible option when people are drowning and ruthless criminals are profiting from human misery. Decisive leadership is required to tackle the smuggling of people through illicit and criminal means. This evil trade must be stopped. The principle of the plan is simple. People will no longer be able to pay evil people smugglers to go to a destination of their choice while passing through safe, sometimes several safe countries. If you come from a safe country, you are picking the UK as a preferred destination. Uncontrolled immigration reduces our capacity to help those who most need our support. It puts intolerable pressure on public services and local communities. Long-lasting change will not happen overnight. It requires a long-term plan. As I've said many times before in this House, there is no one single solution, but this Government will deliver the first comprehensive overhaul of the asylum system in decades. Was that remotely convincing, that response from the Minister? Not at all. You can hear from the way he's speaking. This is a very planned response. In fact, probably something that has been rehearsed many times in front of a mirror. It almost sounds as if it's got a sort of grim fairy tale story about it, the way he describes the evil people draggers. Now, not, not saying for a minute they're not evil, but it's almost been designed to hit the emotional buttons. But describing it as world-leading, world-beating, global-first... Shall we hear how Stuart responded to the speech? Mr. Macdonald. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My sincere thank you to you for granting this urgent question. Mr. Speaker, this is not world-leading policy. If anything, this is leading us to the total shredding of the Refugee Convention. This cash for deportations policy is akin to state-sponsored trafficking and transportation. What is more, it is a grim political stunt being rushed out again to shore up the Prime Minister. Why else has this flight been organised before the relevant provisions of the Horrible Borders Bill were even brought into force? What is the Minister's explanation for that? More fundamentally, why are Ministers pressing ahead when even the most basic safeguards are not in place? Mr Speaker, I fear age assessment processes are totally inadequate and will see children sent to Rwanda. 
As I understand it, such a difficult process has been crammed into a 30-minute interview with two immigration officers, with young people left unaware of their rights to challenge decisions that they are adults in. I'd like to know from the Minister if that is accurate. And how on earth can especially vulnerable people, such as trafficking victims, torture survivors, LGBT people, be identified by a basic screening interview? Another process that the Minister knows takes a long time. Indeed, why is it permissible at all for trafficking survivors to be part of the inadmissibility procedures? Mr Speaker, access to legal advice is crucial. So let me ask, can you confirm how many of those scheduled to be on the flight tomorrow have not yet been able to seek legal advice? There is no functioning joint committee or monitoring committee yet. How can it possibly be right to proceed when these basic oversight bodies are not yet established? And he knows that the overwhelming balance of legal opinion, including that of UNHCR, is that this policy is totally illegal. Now, surely if the government had any final shred of respect for the rule of law, it would at least wait until a final ruling in July before commencing this policy. Mr Speaker, this is a policy that won't work on its own awful terms. Will he confirm that the Rwandan asylum system only has capacity for a couple of hundred new cases each year? And has he been made aware of evidence that even now more risky routes are already being tried by smugglers as a result? Mr Speaker, in conclusion, this will not hurt horrendous people smugglers one jot, but it will badly hurt those who have fled persecution and sought protection here. And this policy brings shame on the UK internationally. This question actually was asked the day before the first flight was due to take off. And thanks to the intervention of various human rights lawyers, including, I think, the European Court, it was cancelled. The people who've been on it, given what they've been through, what this is doing to their mental state. Yeah, it's prolonging suffering that under any better system, our first response to it would be, how can we assuage this? Yeah. The point was made during the discussion that the reason that these desperate people are coming across in boats is because they have no legal route. Certainly, and using again this sort of idea of the scary people smugglers as this smoke screen to just hide the little bit which is, oh yes, and in order to combat these guys, we're going to increase suffering to the actual victims of the smuggle. Yeah, it's like we're going to crack down on burglary by victimising people who've been burgled. It is horrific. If that wasn't bad enough, despite evidence that the Human Rights Act is working well, they still would like to change it. They want to rewrite it. They want to take away human rights. The first clip we're going to play is Anne McLaughlin, SNP MP. Mr Speaker, this Bill of Rights and the removal of the Human Rights Act is a culmination of multiple pieces of legislation that have gone through this place in the last year. And they're all about one thing. It's about removing human rights from human beings. Yeah. First, they came for the refugees with the Nationality and Borders mm-hmm. Act, and they told them that their lives didn't count. Second, they came for those who need to question decisions made about their lives by public bodies, including this government, in the Judicial Review Act, where they stopped them being effectively, effectively able to do that. Yeah. Then they went for the voters in the elections bill. Yeah. And, and what do you know? It was the voters they were targeting were the ones least likely to vote Conservative, the sensible <laughs> ones and otherwise. In other words, then they went for the gypsy Roma traveller communities yeah. with the policing yeah. bill and told them that their way of life was unacceptable yeah. to us. Well, it's not unacceptable yeah. to yeah. us. Yeah. And yeah. then when they did didn't get their way out over public order in the policing bill, they repackaged it and brought it together in the public order bill. 
and that is taking away the rights of anybody to fight for the rights of anybody else. And who would go to, who would go to a protest when they can be stopped and searched without any suspicion? Yeah. It's all about one thing. It's about removing human rights from human beings. And here today, this is the culmination of all of it. It's about removing everybody's human rights. Because human rights are not about one group of people, the group of people that he likes to pick on. Human rights are about everybody living on these islands. So I've got three quick questions, and I'll leave the rest to my colleagues. One, why the lack of pre-legislative scrutiny? What are they so afraid of? Two, why, why is he telling people that this will bring rights home when in actual fact it will force people to go to Strasbourg in order to get justice? And finally, the Scottish and Welsh governments have made it clear that they are completely against this in its entirety. So how does he... We have a tale of two countries, Scotland embedding human rights law into all of its legislation, yep. this government stripping it away completely. How would he advise the people of Scotland who want to retain human rights law in their, in their legislation, how would he advise them to vote in next year's independence referendum? Yeah. Yes uh, or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The minute you hear the term removing human rights, I mean... <laughs> That should set alarm bells ringing to begin with. It's the act of a comic book villain. Well, or a fascist dictatorship. Or a fascist dictatorship. The fact that they're appealing to a far-right ideological group of their membership, surely that should tell them they're in the wrong group. You know, if that's the people you're trying to satisfy, you're on the wrong side. So next, we've got Joanna Cherry. Uh, this was later on in the same debate. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, as Acting Chair of the Joint Committee on Human Rights, I'd like to remind the Secretary of State that we've completed two in-depth, unanimous cross-party reports which concluded that the Human Rights Act is working well and doesn't need to be repealed or replaced. Ah. And indeed, that was the conclusion of the independent review which she oh. commissioned and then ignored. Now, when we visited Strasbourg last week, we were, told, we were told that UK government ministers have given repeated assurances that the UK will remain in the ECHR, and I was pleased to hear him reiterate that assurance this morning. However, the Prime Minister did make some veiled threats in the opposite direction last week. But if we're going to stay in the ECHR, it needs to be done with integrity, and we can't pick and choose which convention rights we want to observe. Right. Nor, from, nor for whom we want to observe them. So does the Secretary of State appreciate that the United Kingdom's disengagement from the ECHR, and make no mistake, Mr Speaker, that's what this bill's about, mm -hmm. does he appreciate that the UK's disengagement from the ECHR risks giving encouragement to populist governments in Eastern Europe yep. who have scant regard for human rights or indeed the rule of law? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing we've uh, spoke about on this subject as well is that it's bad on the face of it, but also the fact that, yeah, this sets a precedent. I mean, as soon as you've done that, you could start removing all kinds of things, just pointing back at this one and going, oh no, we did it this one time, so yeah. we can do it this time. And they've removed the right to appeal against certain things. They're removing the right to protest, in England anyway, and they're trying to crack down on judges and they're trying to give themselves the power to ignore judgments that don't go the way they want them to. So it, it's all about making the government impregnable. It's about making the government unable to be challenged. And that, even for a benign, competent government, would be dangerous. But for this shower, it's just terrifying. Yeah, the attack on the right to protest in particular struck me as a very bad move in a very wrong direction. 
it's the voice of the people. It's yeah. it's you going to the people in charge and making a noise so that they can hear you. If you stamp down on that, then yeah, it very much is the sort of, ah, yes, no, everything is going well. How do I know? I cannot hear anyone dissenting. <laughs> That's exactly. And it's, it takes us from a, a democracy to a dictatorship. Precisely. Our final little dip of the toe in the, the unpleasantness that is Westminster these days is the Scottish Affairs Committee. The Secretary of State against Scotland, as we know him, Alistair Jack, is questioned by Deirdre Brock. And his responses are very revealing because not only does it display an attitude of absolute arrogance, he struggles to keep his temper as well, which is not a nice sign when you've got a a man responding to a woman's questions. But also they've taken it upon themselves to unilaterally rewrite the devolution settlement. Here's three questions which I've put together. So the conversation starts off with Alistair Jack being confronted with the fact he has failed to engage with the Scottish government and it goes downhill from there. And I said we, we, we need to engage with the Scottish government on this and that happened. Now it would have happened at official level to begin with to gauge the temperature, to explain the detail, to get the feedback and then it will have gone to ministerial level. But I, as to the day before... It, it would have been a number of days before, and I can't give you the exact date, that George Eustace and I would have written to the Scottish Government asking them to engage in the bill. Can I just... I've got the letter here, and yeah. the timeline's very clear from the relevant Scottish yeah. Government Minister, where she says, she was expressed a disappointment with your invitation for Scotland to join the bill in the legislation coming the day before the bill was introduced in the UK Parliament, yeah. despite repeated earlier requests from the Scottish Government and other devolved administrations, a draft of the bill was provided only on the afternoon before it was introduced. Yes, well... Uh, there is plenty of time in front of us for the for the uh, the bill. The bill will develop. It will go through the bill committee. There is plenty of time. We will keep communicating with the Scottish government. They have plenty of time to come on board, as all our, as all their stakeholders want them to. Doesn't that indicate a lack of respect for the devolved government? This is a devolved area. No, no, no. no. This is a devolved area. No, no, and so your, England... your government's own impact assessment makes it clear that it it's... will have a significant impact on Scotland despite it being English-only legislation. As I say, it, it, it is an England-only bill. We would, like, we would like the Scottish Government to come on board to make it a UK-wide bill. That's what we would like to achieve. But, you know, we, what we do with legislation is we speak, we speak at official level, we iron out the wrinkles, we work out whether or not there's an LCM required or whether it's going to be England-only or et cetera, et cetera, and then, and then ministers get involved once that legwork has been done. That's, that's perfectly normal. The, the ministers don't do, do the, the end negotiations, not the early negotiations. Yeah, I would suggest the fact that the minister's written a letter to um, the uh, Minister for Agriculture and making well, it's in response that to the letter that, that letter. It's in a response to a letter we wrote, mm. we, we wrote first. I think it was more in a response to the fact that they weren't, uh, it wasn't discussed before that legislation was introduced. These aren't our projects. We haven't developed these. Mm-hmm. These have come from the local areas. So, for example, uh, the redevelopment of Granton in your constituency, which was being funded, that came up through City of Edinburgh Council. Mm-hmm. And I met with them uh, to discuss it. And when that bid went in, it went through all the, the, the appropriate uh, uh, appraisal checks. That's how it works. It's not our scheme. It comes mm-hmm. from the ground. Of course, up. it bypasses the Scottish Government. 
who have worked very closely with the Edinburgh Council over many years in many areas. I did find that extraordinary, and as you know, I did are we, are you suggesting place that we on don't the record. Are, are you suggesting we don't find... I would suggest that you should be dealing with the Scottish Government as well. That's my position. I think we should deal with the local authorities who... And we, it's their schemes We took the decision right at the beginning to practice real devolution, it? and we're standing by it. Real so you want to suck it up and go with the programme because there's so much can be achieved for your constituents. very ministerial. Well, I know, but I'm just telling you, I mean, I, I actually met with the grant and project people last week, and, really? and they've got a further bid they want to put, and they need the M levelling up money, they need the MP support, and you are the MP, and I hope you'll get behind it. I gave my support, absolutely. Um, but what is real devolution? What Scottish, what's the Scottish Government then, the Scottish Parliament? Is that not real? Is that surreal devolution? What is it? It's a centralising central devolution, what is a Scottish yeah. Government? So, so that it's a central government. This is a central government. Okay. What we are about is empowering the local areas, okay. not just at local authority level, but going down a level beyond, beyond that. Uh -huh. Bypassing the Scottish government. No, anyway, it's not a, no. Why are they called the territorial officers? What is Scotland a territory of? Well, you're getting hung up on, on terminology. We are, we are one United Kingdom, but in the United Kingdom we have devolved administrations and we have a nation in Scotland, a principality in Wales, and a province in Northern Ireland. That's just what the terminology is, whether you like it or not. I see. So, therefore, England is a nation, you recognise that, yeah. not a territory. So why call it a territorial office? There are many people who find that quite if you come up, If you come up, with a come up with it, write to us with some, some, other, some suggestions of different names. I mean, really, it, do you know many what? Many people would it, have it, lots it, of suggestions. But I find this extraordinary, that they are rewriting devolution so that they can deal directly with councils and bypassing the Scottish Government. They're completely disregarding the Scotland Act. They're completely disregarding their own legislation. It's astonishing. Yeah, it comes across just as a way for them to play the field and try and find certain people who will be more loyal to them in various council areas. Yeah, there has been criticism that the levelling up money is going primarily to constituencies where MPs perhaps don't have a very big majority or where they'd like to try and attack the seat. Just smacks of underhand practice. Yeah, it sounds like, oh yeah, uh, we built you this nice new facility here. It was us, by the way, not your government, it was us. And it you might know. not be a facility that you needed, and it may now be that your government no longer has the funds to do the things that you actually do need, because we've bypassed them and we've decided what it's going to be spent on. And you're absolutely right. Badging it as UK government, rather than giving the money to the Scottish government and let them spend it where it's needed. Yeah, no, it's, it's just comes across as incredibly disrespectful. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Right, enough of Westminster and the horrific things going on there. We'll move up to Holyrood. <laughs> but let's have a break from politicians as well. So, as you know, in Holyrood, they open every session with time for reflection. This one I thought was particularly moving. It came from John Lawton. Good afternoon. The first item of business this afternoon is time for reflection. And our time for reflection leader today is John Lawton, BEM, Chief Executive of Dare to Lead and founder of Scran Academy. Presiding Officer, Members of the Scottish Parliament, thank you very much for having me here today. It's an honour to address you. The last time I stood on the chamber floor to speak to this room, 
was in 2008. I was the chair of the Youth Parliament and I was speaking to a room of MSYPs um, so I can give feedback on who the tougher audience was. Today I want to share with you one story and perhaps unusually make one confession. The story is of a 12-year-old boy who changed my life. He wrote to himself at the time thinking no one would ever see it with the words, I hate my life. I'm sick of all the drugs, the awful houses, the getting bullied and the crime in that. We didn't see dad now and mum is always depressed on the couch. When I go to sleep, I hope I didn't have to wake up. Nobody seems to care about people like me. My life will never, ever change. Powerful and sad words of hopelessness. They remain etched deep onto my heart and words that typify truth for too many of the young people I work with today. We must use our platforms of power to not simply raise ourselves, but to build ladders of hope for others to rise. Ladders like Charity Scran Academy, which I founded five years ago and pivoted during lockdown to help thousands of people most in need. We witnessed the transformational power of local people with authentic lived experience becoming experienced and stepping up to be their own solutions. I promised you a confession. The boy in the diary was me. I stand here today as a proud working class queer citizen who faced the bullies, trauma and poverty. And I chose to not concede, to not give up and to dare to lead, especially in the darkest of times. Ever since my first wee campaign aged 11 in Pilton, I try and act with bravery and passion to be an inspiring ginger example to others, something we could all choose to do. Maybe not the ginger part. We can and must redefine the paradigms of what's possible for people. We can let yesterday's scars become today's strengths. And I want people to know that our vulnerabilities can become the content of our voices. That's hope. And we must have space for vulnerability and openness in our leadership models and examples of today. My purpose is really clear to me. To live today as the adult that the young boy in that diary needed. And I invite us all to do the same. We are all role models to a young person somewhere. Let's never allow this legislature to settle upon the notion that your life starting point is your life sentence. Let's never settle on the idea that some people from some places are just destined to fail. Or settle on the idea that radically compassionate change is somehow too big or too hard. 
Please stay impatient. Let's all build ladders of hope. Let's all be the adults that a generation of kids so desperately need. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. Certainly very uplifting stuff. Holyrood is not without its issues either, particularly with the Tories doing their best to show the Scottish Government's failings because they think that somehow makes the case for the Union. I'm not convinced it does. But as we have seen from their obsession with ferries, their other obsession has been the census and the fact that only 86%, I think it was, had filled it in. I'm now, sure you can tack only in front of that number. Well, no, it's a big number. Rachel Hamilton in particular has brought it up on several occasions and she brought it up again in a committee that she was taking part in, almost stating as fact what was you know, in her mind, what his failings were. But where she fell down was that also giving evidence to that committee was the person in charge of the census. And he had a different way of looking at it. So let's hear Rachel's question and then from the Registrar General. I mean, you've referenced the census quite a lot. Only 86% of people filled in the census. And there is concern that actually that data is going to be able to be, um, you know, used in a in a quantitative manner I suppose um, so it, it's a, we're you know it's a very difficult um, example to to use in the current circumstances right, thank you very much convener yeah as the registrar general I'm responsible for taking the census so uh, as a, some commentary on it I thought it would be appropriate just to note a few points in terms of the, the comments made about the data I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I'm happy that I haven't got 90 percent plus in the census but there seems to be great weight of interpretation that because we haven't achieved that, the census is in some way, uh, I've heard various words, shambles and various other things that have been defined. And that's not the case. We're the organisation who are the census taking experts. We've been doing it for over 200 years. We can produce a good quality census outcome with the 87% plus return rate that we've received now. Um, I, I appreciate that this has been a source of speculation, so I commissioned an international panel of experts chaired by Professor James Brown uh, from Sydney, who's a professor in official statistics there, and including a number of international experts, including the UK national statistician, Serene Diamond. Last week, they issued a statement saying that the census achieved a solid foundation and it was appropriate to move on to the next stages. Modern censuses are not just about the collection of data. That's kind of how it used to be done a long time ago. The last 30 years, we've been using census collection. We've been using something called a census coverage survey, which we're about to start running in Scotland, uh, and a range of other statistical techniques to produce high-quality outcomes. And, and we will use those advised by the international panel that I've convened to ensure that we provide high-quality census outputs. So I just thought it'd be helpful to clarify those points as they've come up in discussion. Thank you, convener. Another of the, the Tory attack lines against the Scottish Government is always this mythical black hole in the public finances that they talk about. Um, so here we have Kate Forbes at the Finance and Public Administration Committee explaining as clearly as she can that such a thing just does not exist. All of these forecasts have been updated not by me, because it's not my job to forecast, it's the SFC's job to forecast. And the way that you build a budget or resource spending review is that you use the latest figures that the SFC provide me with, which they've now published, and I must balance my budget on the basis of that. 
So forecasts change constantly. Yeah, I understand that, Cabinet Secretary. What I'm asking for, uh, you to tell us, because I think it is very important, just as you've uh, acknowledged yourself, is it, if these changes have all taken place, as you rightly point out, what is the figure that you are using for the black hole in the public finances? There is no black hole in public finances. Really? There is no black... I mean, this is, this is the most basics of a budget in this, that the Scottish Government sets. But it's not a budget, review. Cabinet Secretary. You said that originally. This is not a budget... Indeed, a resource spending review. I, I, I don't know how else to explain the absolute basics of Scottish Government budgets, which are or resource spending reviews, which are that I must balance. I can only spend to the penny what I am predicted or forecast to either raise or receive. You cannot have a position in a resource spending review or in a budget where I'm overspending. That's why querying the Scottish Fiscal Commission's assumptions is so important, because they start with assumptions, they provide us with forecasts, and I only can spend what they enable me to spend. So we've covered Westminster and Holyrood. Another thing that happened in June, there was a, an All Under One Banner march at Dumfries. I was at it. It was a small but enthusiastic little march in a very nice place. Local MSP Emma Harper was one of the speakers, and this is her speech. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. It is such a brosicht to see such a sea of blue in Dumfries. Um, this is absolutely fantastic to see all the salt tyres waving in the wind today and it is a wee bit breezy actually. But uh, welcome to Dumfries. This is uh, the land of the Dunhamers and I thank you all for coming today. It's, uh, it actually is a joy and a pleasure to be out and to see so many folk. I know we've had two and a half years of not being able to see each other, hang out with our pals and even, you know, gather. So today was fantastic to see so many folk march through the streets of my hometown. So thanks everybody for coming here. I want to say it's time for Scotland to be an independent country. And, and I'm sure you all agree with that. Um, Westminster system is absolutely broken. We, we see that day in, day out, and when I'm in chamber in Parliament and pointing fingers and arguing with the opposition across, we've got 754 unelected members of the House of Lords, and they get 350 quid a day to show up, and all they need to do is show up for 20 minutes, and probably it'll take them 20 minutes to get on their robes, actually. So... For us in Scotland, we need to have democracy. We need to promote engagement and inclusivity. Today, we've got people here from, from England. We've got Dumfries and Galloway pensioners for Indy here. We've got D&G English Scots for Yes here. We've got people from our European countries. We've got people from America. And we've got people from Labour Party. We've got people from Scottish Socialists. We've got SNP. And we might even have some, and from the Republic of Fife, we even, I'm sure we have, in my experience, we have people who are conservatives that are voting for independence also. So what we want to see in Scotland is Scottish parties for the people who live in Scotland. We want our laws to be made here. We want the parties to be home in Scotland, not being dictated to from Westminster. 
Again, Westminster's broken. It's absolutely clear that we cannot do what we need to do to address the causes of health inequalities without full fiscal responsibility, but better still being an independent country, because that is what normal independent countries do. For me, it's time. It's time Scotland was independent. And so for me, this summer, I will be speaking to people. I will be engaging. And that's what I would love you guys to do. If each one of you could just convince one person, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a neighbour, just convince one person on the merits of independence, we will win more than 50% of the vote in next year's referendum. And I'm sure you'll all be extremely happy when we get above 50% next year. So um, I know for me that uh, I'm suspecting that the First Minister will make some kind of announcement, can't say that for definite, before summer recess, because I would love us to be out on the streets engaging, get your barbecues, have your beers, but talk to folk about independence. That's the bottom line for me. Um, it's time to just get on with it, and that's what I'm about to do. So thanks very much again, everybody, for coming here. Thank you. It's a lovely speech. I think also just a wee sort of side point that we should make here is that it is very encouraging and in fact important that these marches are continuing, even right now in their diminished state sort of post-pandemic, because it could so easily have gone cold as ice, nothing happening at all. You know, make no mistake, it really is tough, especially if you're going to these and now you're seeing these reduced numbers and you're sort of having to go okay, we still got some support, but it really does not look like it used to, and you sort of don't have that feeling of building towards something. But the fact that it is still going on regularly all over the country is very encouraging. It is, and I think as she said, they were expecting an announcement from the First Minister, and of course that announcement did come, and I do sense a, a step change in the movement groups starting to get organised who perhaps had drifted over the, the two years of the pandemic. So we've got the Bannockburn March coming up tomorrow as we're recording this. It'll be interesting to see what the numbers there are like and see if they are building. And as I say, Dumfries, it wasn't a huge march, but they were up for it. They were enthusiastic and it was a, it was a really good crowd. I think sometimes going to these places who don't normally get included in the demos and things, it's, it's important for them. I think also she made a point somewhere towards sort of the middle of that speech, which is this idea of we should have Scottish parties for the people of Scotland, regardless of which particular party that is. It's no use, like, the Conservative Party down here just being a big wing of the main Conservative Party down in England. They would be so much better served if they were actually focused on, well, what can we do for Conservatives in Scotland, you know? Yeah. And actually, I think they might be more successful if they separated off. And interestingly, the Tories in Wales are actively considering this as well. Ironic that they, they see their only feature as being independent. There's a whole homeless group of conservative-leaning voters in Scotland, I'm sure, who look at what's happening in Westminster and are appalled. But they have no, you know, there's no party up here representing their interests, which there could be if the Scottish Tories would just separate themselves off. And also Labour, a Scottish Labour Party on board with independence could play a massive part in shaping a new country, but they can't do it as a branch office for an English party. Certainly, and there's doubtless to be all kinds of labour issues 
probably quite exciting ones for them in an independent Scotland, but if they're not willing to get on board, then... Yeah, they're not going to be able to influence. They're going to be just drag-kicking and screaming towards it, and then they'll just have to deal with it when it's here. Also, while we were at Dunfries, I spoke to a lady from... I think it was, yes, Dunfreeshire, funnily enough, and she was talking about borders, which, of course, is one of the issues for Dumfries and Galloway being on the border with England. But she had a very positive take on the question of borders. It was very refreshing to hear what she had to say. So here she is. I'm I'm sorry that I didn't get her name, unfortunately, but uh, I'm sure it was, yes, Dumfriesia that she was representing. And she also mentioned a website which is called Shared Borders, Shared Future. Because we've got the common travel area, even if we end up rejoining the EU, which of course is the question for people to decide after independence, um, it doesn't stop us having the common travel area. So we shouldn't have to have any question about showing your passport at the border. And it's got nothing to do with the EU. It's completely separate to it. And if we end up as part of the European Economic Area, so we're in the single market, but we're not actually in the EU, which seems like quite a sensible way to start, then you've still got all the benefits of the common travel area, plus all the benefits that are almost almost the same as being in the EU. Then all the benefits of having our international border back, you know, it could be so good particularly for Dunfries and Galloway and the Scottish borders, because we do tend to get bypassed in an awful lot of things, not just by the tourists, by investment and so on, re-establishing that international border. One of the things that would be so nice to see would be things like shows and bands and stuff are now not coming to the UK because of the problems of coming in and out. And if we are independent and we're part of this easy to travel about area, we could have, and I'm saying to Priest Galloway and the Borders, we could have a nice big venue built so that all the shows come, you come close to the border so that people can come up from England, They can, uh, your artists can access a whole uh, massive amount of people that they wouldn't be able to get to otherwise, they can travel to us, your people don't miss out on the things they really love to see and your artists get access to, to a, a further market. And it would be such a tremendous investment for Dumfries and Galloway on the borders. We really, really need investment. And, you know, every border, every non-third world border that you come across has got investment. It's got infrastructure. It's got tourism. It's got all the benefits of, you know, things like duty-free. Or, again, if England keeps itself out of the European economic area or the single market and we are in it, we'll have things that they can't get. So if you've been to Gretna Gateway, you could expand the likes of Gretna Gateway so that we now have all the stuff that's coming through the EU and not blotting at the borders, now comes to us. And it's only just over the border for people coming to up to get it. Uh, and if we improve our infrastructure so that people can get to it, then you know the, the opportunities. Yeah, and we need good jobs and we need good investment and we really need just a big kick up of the backside for the south of Scotland to to feel that we are part of something important again. And in the local council elections here in Dumfries and Galloway, um, the SNP stood at candidate in all twelve seats. Um, they won eleven seats and most of those they won as the first 
cancelling. Yeah. And it doesn't come out like that because you just put them in a fresh gorgeous, you don't realise that. But yeah, you know, the SNP Council won the first seat and it's really important that people understand that it's not, this is not a, a Tory stronghold. We are just unfortunate that we have an awful lot of stuff going against us. I was just saying that we have such a good relationship across the border because there's so many people that go backwards and forwards, not just for visiting, you know, for your work, for your, your shopping. Again, go back to investment. In Dumfries and Galloway, if you want to go to the big pictures, you've got to go to Carlisle. If you want to go to paintball and things like that, again, you've got to go to Carlisle. The stupid things like the garages for your car. If you've got to get your car serviced by that particular brand because you've got to go to Carlisle to get it done. Well, if there's any problem with if they don't want to have our money in the future, that's fine because those places can open up here. Yes. And if we have got a good relationship with Europe, then maybe Europe will invest in us and ensure that we don't need to, to cross for the things that um, we don't have to. The opportunities are just there for someone to grasp. Yeah. A bit hard to hear some of that because it was very, very windy in the park. But an interesting take, wasn't it? Because you usually hear the border associated with problems and she saw lots of opportunities. Certainly a very positive look at it. And it is important to remember that, that, yeah, the question of the border, when it comes up, it's almost always seems to be linked with this strange, like, as far as we know, non-existent, like, animosity. Like, oh, yes, there'll be this hard thing and everyone will want to like keep everyone Berlin else out. War, I think that's what they... Precisely. But the fact is, is the border can be as soft and welcoming as you can make it. You just have to have both sides agree to it. And then, yeah, it could well be like she describes, you know, we've got all the benefits, perhaps, of EU things that immediately creates a draw for us. And they will also have services that we would want to cross over to do there, although admittedly, in her case, with a view to us actually having them on our side as well. But The EU's definition of a border is something that facilitates trade. It's to help trade happen. The idea that it would you'd throw up a barrier to make sure you couldn't trade, it's just nonsense. Precisely. I mean, fundamentally, the borderline into your country should be the welcome mat. It's where you say, Hey, come in, look, it's us. Here's what we have. Would you like yeah. some of it? You know, rather than, hold on there, buddy. <laughs> you don't get into Utopia for free. <laughs> so, for the last two clips we've got, we'll just look at the, the wider question of Scottish independence because the campaign has well and truly been kick-started. The first, we got support from a very unlikely quarter. This is Tory MSP Murdo Fraser, who was on, I think it might have been GB News. He was asked a bit of a, a silly question anyway, which was, shouldn't England just kick Scotland out? Fraser's response was extraordinary. Uh, it was extraordinary not just because of the very, very rosy and accurately rosy picture he painted of Scotland. It was the way he described it as, as if he would be losing these things because he would be staying in the United Kingdom when Scotland became independent. So what he's thinking is going to happen there, I'm not sure. But let's listen to what he's got to say. If Scotland leaves the UK, uh, we lose uh, roughly... Uh, a third of the landmass of Great Britain, probably around half of our territorial waters. We lose the magnificent resource that is uh, Scottish fishing waters. We lose uh, the opportunities from uh, North Sea oil and gas, still there despite Nicola Sturgeon's best efforts. We lose the potential for renewable energy uh, from Scotland's uh, coasts uh, and in the North Sea and, and the Atlantic. We lose access to 
barrier-free trade for Scotch whisky and Scotch salmon, all these fantastic uh, exports, the opportunity to study at some of the world's greatest universities uh, in Scotland, and the joy of having uh, Scots uh, as part of the British uh, nation. Why would you want to throw that away? Now, isn't that a bizarre way of describing your position? <laughs> Yeah, funny that one. I think we should definitely keep this one on archive for the next time they start up with You've Got Nothing. <laughs> I've just got a mental picture of, of Murdo sort of stepping over the line to the English side of the border when independence is declared, saying, not nope, you're taking me with you. Yeah, this strange idea that, as you say, I mean, the use of we we would be losing these things as though, yeah, he goes, well, I am part of a package deal. I stay with the UK. <laughs> Maybe he's got plans to annex the borders if they don't vote yet. Who knows? But he seems to think there will be some residual part of Scotland within the UK that he will still be part of, but without all the resources that the rest of Scotland will have. It's a, a, a curious worldview. Fascinating. And the final clip is the wonderful Leslie Riddick, and this is a very short clip when she was on debate night and she was asked, well, what has actually changed since 2014? Why should there be another referendum? Changed since the last time we did this. Boris Johnson. Um, Boris Johnson, Brexit, lies. Um, a cost of living crisis, okay, there is a lot of it across the world, but let's look at some of the points that were raised about your electricity bill, for example. Um, Scots are paying the highest standing charges in Britain. We actually produce the most renewable energy. Absolutely. Our renewable producers are charged, surcharged, for connection to a grid that isn't being invested in yep. because it's owned by a company based in London. Yep. I know that sounds like an extraordinary conspiracy theory. It's true. Yep. Uh, Scotland is a virtual embarrassment of riches when it comes to the different kinds of energies we've got. What, what and the doing? only chance we've got to be able to really push this out and to reach the green transition to perhaps be a model for much of the rest of the world is to get the investment going. I mean, Orkney, where Neil comes from, still doesn't have a subsea connector capable of taking some of the highest levels of wind energy in Europe. Yeah. So that's where we are with this. And I appreciate people are looking at bills and this is what we are concentrating on now for sure. But what the referendum is a chance to do is to say, we can just keep throwing good money after bad. We can keep trying to make broken structures in Britain work. We can still live with the aftermath of Thatcher privatizing everything which should have remained in the public sector. And we know that as Scots because the bulk of us have been voting Labour and, and SNP to create a social democracy for practically the last century. That's what this is about. It's a long-term vision of a different way of working than having a marketised society, which is what English voters seem to be quite happy to do. We're not. She makes some great points, highlighting just how, yeah, we are at the moment not only shackled to like these fossil fuel things because of the situation we're in, but yeah, also hamstrung by the fact that we're paying for the situation we're in. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you very much for being part of the discussion. It's always good to have another viewpoint. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. To everybody listening, thanks for listening. We'll be back again next month when we see what July throws our way. And uh, if it's anything like June, there'll be plenty for us to chat about. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. 
Come on, baby.